listening to talks from the Apostolic Joanite Church. A pattern seems to be sort of emerging in, in these conclaves where I uh, regularly do a talk on one of the seven sacraments. And uh, like many conclave talks that sort of fall into groups, I started to to see the pattern emerging and then went, oh yeah, that's, that's a good idea. We should probably do that. So today I'm going to start by talking about the sacrament of baptism. And to a certain extent, the focus is going to be on baptism within the context of the broader church. That is to say, of the Catholic and the Orthodox uh, communions. Uh, because they have a richer tradition regarding baptism and being part of that one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church means that that is our tradition as well. So just to start with the most basic, the word baptism comes from the Greek bapto. Bapto means to wash or to immerse, to dip. And naturally baptism has to do with a kind of purification. The Gospel of John refers to a new birth by water and the Holy Spirit. And this idea is that there is a new birth into the kingdom of God. St. Thomas Aquinas gives this definition. Baptism is the external ablution of the body performed with the prescribed form of words. So, like many sacraments there are fixed formula that are used and we're going to talk about the necessity of those formula but like other elements of especially early christian practice baptism doesn't just sort of pop out of nowhere it has a, a history and certainly within pagan practice there are lots of examples of lustral waters that is to say water used as a sign of purification and, and spiritual renewal. We can think, for example, of the ritual of washing in the Ganges for the Hindus, or Mandean practice, obviously close to our own history, where purification, rather than initiation, seemed to have been the focus. But in both cases, we're talking about running water. And the idea of water moving during baptism becomes an important part of the Christian ritual. Of course, the Jews also had rituals for purifications of uncleanliness of various sorts. The ritual washing or ablution has two main forms, and naturally I'm going to mutilate the Hebrew here. So I apologize in advance. Uh, tevila is the full body immersion in a, a pool of water. Uh, <clears throat> there is also the nevilat yadayim, which is the washing of hands uh, using a, a, a cup. And these were prescribed for different kinds of pollution. So we can see right away that baptism has to do with washing away a certain kind of corruption, a certain kind of, of filth. And when we start to talk about baptism, especially within the context of infant baptism, that's going to be, I think, theologically problematic from a Gnostic perspective to a certain extent. And so we, we're going to have to read that in a particular way. Of course, John the Baptist baptized. And this has been uh, a question that's already come up over the course of discussions here at Conclave. It is considered by the, the Christian tradition to be a fundamentally different sort of baptism. That number one, it does not, this is John's baptism here, does not confer grace. And that the followers of John the Baptist needed to be rebaptized. And actually, if we look at uh, Acts 19, and just uh, read this real quickly. He met some disciples there. This is Paul being referred to, of course. 
and asked them, was the Holy Spirit given to you when you learned to believe? And they said, why, nobody even mentioned to us the existence of a Holy Spirit. What baptism then did you receive, Paul asked. And they said, John's baptism. So Paul told them, John baptized to bring men to repentance, but he bade the people have faith in one who was to come after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they received baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came down on them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. And all these men were about twelve in number. So here we actually see a, a rebaptism that that the the baptism of John wasn't complete; it wasn't sufficient. That it brought people into the fold, as it were but didn't confer the spiritual grace that was going to be conferred in Christian baptism. Of course, this particular passage also raises a problem that we're going to have to deal with later on, which is the idea of, of in whose name this baptism is done. Because here we are specifically told that they are baptized in Jesus' name, whereas the sacramental formula for Christianity has traditionally been to baptize in the name of the Trinity. So, so to be sure, uh, according to this passage in Acts at least, there is a significant difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of, of Jesus. That said, the moment of Jesus' baptism by John is, is a striking scene. I and mean, it, it's an extraordinary moment in the life of Jesus. And so when we look at that, we have to ask, what purpose is that serving? If Paul is right that John's baptism brought men to repentance, well, why does Jesus need to be baptized then? And the way that I've always thought about this is, is this is a bridge between the Jewish purification tradition and the new Christian baptism. And I think that this works quite well with our conception of our relationship, not just to Christianity, but to natural religion that precedes it. That there is a, a, a tradition that goes from creation all the way up to the Christ event. There is something that follows the Christ event that is, that is Christianity. And there is a link between those two, which is the, the period of, of Christ's ministry. And in a very real way, that Christ event begins with the baptism by John. Now, I, I'm not sort of staking out an adoptionist position here or anything like that, although one certainly can think of it in those terms. But there does seem to be something that starts in a decisive and profound way with John's baptism. The commission to baptize, the, the, the sending out to baptize, is uh, in the Gospels. It, it actually occurs in John 3 and 4. And the church fathers certainly agreed that this was a sacrament that was instituted by Christ. There's no doubt among the church uh, fathers about the veracity of that statement. But nobody seems to be able to say exactly when it was instituted. There doesn't seem to be any particular moment where this Christian baptism of grace begins in the Gospels. Uh, so it nonetheless is a very, very ancient tradition. So we can see that, that Christian baptism is, in a very real way, an outgrowth, uh, a development of, of an earlier practice that was part of both pagan and monotheistic Jewish traditions. So it links us back to that, but is nonetheless something fundamentally different. Theologically, baptism has been called the door to the sacraments. And there is a kind of necessity that is part of the, the whole rhetoric of baptism. You sort of can't do a whole lot else without it. That, that There has to be this starting point. In fact, uh, Gospel of John, chapter 3, says, Unless a man be born again of water and the Holy Ghost, 
he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So you've got to get your little watery golden ticket. It is always performed, or almost always performed, with chrismation in the, in the Eastern churches. So there's always this, this doubling. And we've talked about this, we talked about this yesterday, the idea that you have, have purification and consecration, that there, there's purification with water and the consecration with fire, and that these two always go hand in hand. And to be sure, within the Orthodox tradition, there's always that linkage between the two, and they're done, done together. The practice of infant baptism is a sticky point for a, a, a lot of contemporary Gnostics in particular, but contemporary Christians in general, because it seems to assume a kind of, of corruption, a kind of pollution from the get-go. And that can be a very disconcerting kind of concept. I know that in teaching ethics, uh, my students often struggle with the idea of the, the justness of some sort of punishment being meted out to a child, uh, and thinking here in a, a cosmic sense, a sort of divine justice being meted out to a child who really could not have sinned in any meaningful sort of way. They're not rational beings in the way that a fully formed adult would be, and therefore can't be held morally responsible for their actions in quite the same way. And so the idea that we would need to purify a child, that that child is somehow already corrupt or already polluted, is a, a, a very strange one in some sense. And to be sure, the idea of original sin is part of the whole rhetoric of why infant baptism is necessary. The argument is, is quite simple, of course, that we are sinful by our nature because of the original fall in the Garden of Eden, that we are stained with that sin from birth, and therefore we need the, the sacrament of baptism to wash us clean of that original sin, to get the grace that we need to go about our business. But I think that we also can recognize that there is a much more down-to-earth process going on here. That baptism marks an initiation. It marks an entrance into a particular community. And so the, the baptism of an infant is more a recognition that that child is part of an existing community that the parents and the godparents take an oath in this uh, case to, uh, to see that that child is raised in a particular way, that they become committed to uh, the community from the get-go. And so I think that we can, in looking at this, set aside some of the concerns about pollution and corruption of infants. We don't need necessarily to subscribe to an idea of original sin in order to see the meaningfulness and the, 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 the importance of infant baptism. That said, in most cases in the contemporary Gnostic churches, baptism, if it is done within the context of that particular church, is an adult baptism. Uh, by no means always, but that is much more common. Because Gnosticism requires such great participation on the part of its adherents. This is not something where you can just sort of go to church on Sunday and that's, that's all you need to do. It requires an active commitment. And that commitment is one that is generally taken on by somebody who's already come to Gnosticism through a, a kind of spiritual journey. And so baptism becomes a, a moment of, of initiation into that community. Like all the sacraments, there is a, a, a traditional form, matter, and intent. The intent, I think, is quite clear. But the form and matter are sort of interesting. Traditionally, sacramental theology has distinguished between a, a remote matter and a proximate matter, just simply near and far. The proximal matter being what is close by, what is at the heart. The remote matter being what is external. The remote matter is traditionally true natural water. 
And the question of what kinds of things can be used in order to, to perform baptism has been the subject of the kinds of wonderful and stupid speculations that we see regarding all kinds of, of sacramental matters. You know, can we use ice? Can we use snow? Can we use snow that's melted? How much of it has to be melted? Uh, can we use water from rivers? Can we use water from lakes? Can we use water from the sea? Can we use water that's, that's got salt in it? Can we use water that's got sugar in it? Can we use water that's got honey in it or wine in it? Can we use water that's colored? This actually comes up as a question. I mean, I don't think we want to be baptizing anybody with, you know, bright red food-colored water or anything like that. But the, the standard answer regarding this is anything that could be normally called water is acceptable. So water derived from ice, you melt some ice, that's water. Take snow, you melt it down, that's water. And take hail, melt it down, that's water. Collect dew. That's water. Water from lakes is water. Water from springs is water. Rivers, oceans, hot or cold, salty or sweet, cloudy or clear, even colored, but not beer. Yeah, not beer. And this actually has been specifically uh, dealt with, actually. The, apparently, the Archbishop of Trondheim in Norway had been using beer or mead uh, for baptism, and the practice is specifically and explicitly condemned by Pope Gregory the Ninth. So, screw you, Gregory the Ninth. <laughs> the proximate matter is is the ablution, is the actual cleansing, and that is washing with water, and as a result. One of the important elements is that the water must flow. The water cannot be standing water, can't be, it's not stagnant in, in the sense that it doesn't move. There are three traditional forms in which water is applied to the body. <coughs> Immersion, uh, which is, to be sure, the most ancient of the three kinds. Uh, it has its roots in Jewish practice. It, uh, sorry, am I getting out of shock here? Uh, I, I wander, so I, I always have to worry that people, you know, wander out the door or something. The like camera that. moves too. Camera moves too. Yeah, oh. so. These are things I don't know. So, uh, the, obviously, uh, immersion is the the most ancient. That's uh, it's rooted in both the the pagan and Jewish practices. Uh, it's what we see in in John's baptism. So, this makes sense. And if we think of baptism as a bath, as a, a washing of that sort, uh, immersion makes, makes sense. And uh, that is the, the root of the word. There is also a fusion. A fusion is the pouring of water over the body. And in the Catholic tradition in particular, this has become the, the most common form. That, that water is poured over, especially an infant. Uh, and, and so this baptism is still a baptism with running water. There is the baptism also of aspersion or sprinkling. And the theologians have, have realized that there are some real concerns here as to the efficacy of a sprinkling baptism. First of all, the water has to flow. And if I just you know, spritz you real quickly, the water doesn't really flow. So you've got you've to sprinkle enough that the water flows. You've got to make sure that it touches the skin. If I sprinkle uh, water and it just touches the clothing, that's not generally considered to be a valid baptism. So the pouring becomes a, a, a much easier way of making sure that all of those, those elements, that, that there's true natural water, that there is uh, movement of the water, and that it touches the skin, we can ensure that, that all of that is happening. The form of the sacrament has to do very specifically with the, the formula or the words that are spoken during the baptism. 
I baptize thee, or this person is baptized, so active or passive, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what's important there? The word baptize has to be spoken. That for the sacramental tradition, you have to say that word or its equivalent. I am baptizing. That's what's going on. I'm not scrubbing up. I'm not, you know, taking a bath. I'm, you know, not having a drink. I am baptizing or being baptized. And the Trinitarian formula has to be pronounced. In order for the sacrament to be valid within the traditional sacramental understanding of this, this external manifestation of internal grace, there has to be the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is considerable controversy regarding this. Question here? I'm sorry, this might be bigger than this talk allows for, but I don't really understand the concept of grace. The, the idea here, to put it very, very simply, um, the idea of, of grace in, in this context is that this is, is a, a gift that is offered by the divine to us in order to, uh, to, to allow us to make our way to salvation. And so the idea is that, that and, and this is just one conception of course, uh, that none of us by our own merits deserves the, the, the pure salvation, right? I mean, that is, that is such an extraordinary gift that none of us, by our own merits, is going to deserve that. And so there has to be a kind of generosity. There has to be a kind of gift. There has to be uh, something on the part of the divine that says, all right, you've gotten this far, I'm going to make up the difference, right? That I'm going I'm, I'm to allow something <coughs> over and above what is strictly just. And I think that, of course, the way to think about this is a, a very sort of material way of thinking about it. If you're paying your bills, right, and your bill is due on the 15th, and you pay it on the 17th, and you know it was due on the 15th, which means by all rights, you should be charged some sort of a late fee or something like that. But your uh, creditor, in their great mercy, offers you a five-day grace period. And during that grace period, well, yeah, technically you didn't quite make it, but we're going to say that it's good enough. Right? Well, that's essentially what, what the divine is saying to us when it extends grace. It says, you really don't deserve this, strictly speaking. You haven't done everything that you would need to do in order to get this extraordinary extraordinary reward, because that re reward is a reward of perfection. It is the return to, to fullness. So, yeah, okay, we're gonna make up the difference. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna let you slip in, right? I'm obviously, you know, as is my want, sort of, you know, being a little bit facetious about the, the attitude of the divine, but, but I, I think the point still stands, that, that grace is this, this offering that is given that allows us to participate in the life of the divine despite the fact that, that we do always fall short, that we are limited, that we are finite beings. So the baptism is, in the Christian tradition, what affords us that, that grace, that is the, the manifestation of that grace. So, in order for this to happen, according to the sacramental tradition, there has to be the, the invocation of the Trinity. And sacramental churches have generally considered the Trinitarian formula to be absolutely necessary, unquestionably necessary. And within the context of, of AJC practice, we do also consider baptism in the name of the Trinity to be an absolute necessity, that there is no way around that. Which means if we think back to that passage from Acts, we may have a bit of a question, we may have a bit of an issue. Because there does seem to have been a significant tradition of baptizing in the name of Jesus only. And there are a lot of Protestant and evangelical churches, those that do practice some sort of baptism, and not all do, uh, 
that baptize uh, just in the name of, of Jesus. And so the question of the validity of that uh, baptism is, uh, is a significant one. I would be, uh, you know, really sort of torn personally in dealing with this because I think what's most important there is actually the intent. That uh, the intent to, to, to do what has been done, to do what the church does, and that's the church in the, the broadest possible sense of the word, is uh, the, the structure of the intent. And so there is such a thing as, as conditional baptism. That is to say, uh, baptism in such a way that, that we're not quite sure if a previous baptism has taken place or whether it was, was done properly. So there is the possibility of conditional baptism, which says, if you are not yet baptized, then I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, traditionally that has required uh, confession and absolution. That is to say that the, any sins that you might have actually sort of stockpiled prior to your, uh, your baptism uh, would, need to be, uh, would need to be voluntarily confessed and you need to be absolved of those. Um, whereas if you're baptizing an infant in particular, how do you how do you you know extract a, a confession from uh, from an infant that doesn't uh, quite work? So the intent for me I think is is more important. But since we do have this conditional formula that we can use, uh, we can always ensure that baptisms within the context of HAC practice are uh, sacramentally valid. Of course. One of the other questions that always comes up with the practice of any particular uh, uh, sacrament is the, the minister of that sacrament. Who has the power, who has the capacity to, to baptize? And this is an interesting point because, as is the case in, in so many cases uh, with uh, traditional sacraments, the, excuse me, Bishop or a priest is the ordinary minister. Right? So if there's a bishop present at the, uh, at the um, baptism, he or she has the authority to baptize. Uh, in the, the in want of a bishop, a priest, but the deacon can baptize. And in fact, anyone else can administer this sacrament. Any person can administer the sacrament of baptism. Within the Catholic tradition, and there is, as is so often the case, a, a distinction between Catholic and Orthodox practice. Within the Catholic tradition, lay people, heretics, Jews, pagans, or even women, I know, gas. Women right? drivers? The horror. Right? <laughs> Even women can perform baptism. And there is actually a wonderful, wonderful sort of passage in, in the, the, I forget what uh, source for, for Catholic tradition here, that says that, you know, a bishop is to be uh, preferred to a priest. A priest is to be preferred to a deacon. A, uh, somebody in orders is to be preferred to a lay person. Uh, a Catholic is to be preferred to a heretic or a pagan or a Jew. And a man is to be preferred to a woman unless the woman has greater knowledge of the sacrament. That is to say, if, if you know, the woman really understands what's going on better than the man, then the woman is actually to be preferred. Now, obviously, within the AJC tradition, uh, this becomes sort of just absurd and ridiculous. We don't need to make those kinds of distinctions. Although, to be sure, the bishop is to be preferred to the priest, the priest to the deacon, the clergy to the layperson, so on and so forth. In the Orthodox tradition, and I have to admit, for myself, this makes more sense. The sacrament of baptism can be performed only by somebody who is him or herself baptized. That is to say that you can only confer what you have. Uh, there is obviously 
significant debate about this, uh, and, and I don't think that that's necessarily problematic, that there should be uh, a certain amount of disagreement. Uh, within the, the Catholic tradition, anyone can baptize, especially in extremis, that is to say, especially in cases where death might be imminent or something like that. Uh, but within the Orthodox tradition, if you do not have baptism, you cannot confer the baptism. The question, I think, to a certain extent becomes, who is actually conferring the sacrament? And if we say that the minister confers the sacrament, then it makes sense to say that you would have to be a baptized person in order to baptize. If you say that the divine confers the sacrament, then the medium by which that passes becomes, to a certain extent, irrelevant. That uh, a, a pagan, a heretic, uh, a Jew, even a woman, uh, could administer the sacrament because really it is, it is Christ that is acting as the, the priest here. Uh, in general, this is really sort of a, an extraordinary situation. This is, this is only going to come up in cases where where you have this real concern that the, the, the person to be baptized might die within you know, the next few moments. Uh, so uh, this is not something that most of us are, are ever going to have to, to deal with. And to be sure, within an AJC context, uh, if a baptism were administered by, by a lay person, if the baptism were to be uh, administered by uh, a Catholic priest, an Orthodox priest, uh, a, a Lutheran or, or Anglican priest, uh, an evangelical minister, as long as it is done with, with natural water, with uh, true natural water, with the words of uh, uh, the word baptism and with the formula of the Trinity, we would certainly consider that to be valid. Question. So when you were talking about the the order desirability when it comes yeah, yeah. to the minister, is there like an order desirability when it comes to the types of baptism in the sense of like, like there's a baptism of intention and they talk about the baptism of intention. And if I'm surrounded in a room full of heathens mm -hmm. and I'm in extremists, uh, would it be preferred to have a baptism by a pagan or to just be like, or a heathen, or to just have a baptism of intention? The external baptism is always preferred. Okay. The, the external baptism is always preferred. You always want to have, you always want to do as the church does, if, if possible, or as, as, to closely, as closely approximate that if possible. So yeah, I'm, I'm not really going to talk about the baptism of intention. That is, of course, you know, sort of uh, a, a question, you know, if you don't have, you know, if you're out in the middle of the desert, you have no water, uh, you know, how do you baptize, right? And from the standpoint of the pure externals, the remote matter, you can't, right? So do we just say, well, sorry, you know, no entrance into the kingdom of heaven for you. Could you baptize uh, yourself in extremis? I don't believe so. There are stories. There are, are yeah. yeah. Uh, whether or not those are considered canonical. Yeah, the validity is very much in question yeah. at that point. And at that point, we're, we're going to have to rely on something like baptism of intent. At that point, yeah. whether it works or not, it's yeah, still, I mean, still this too point, late. To a certain extent, we're, we're talking about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen at this yeah. point. And as much as we all love these conversations, and I more than most, uh, you know, that these are situations that we won't necessarily have to, 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 to ever really consider. Um, that in living as we do in and amongst, you know, lots and lots of people and given the availability for us in the, the first world of a fairly, you know, competent supply of, uh, of true water, this is obviously not something that we have to worry about a great deal. Any other questions before we stroll on? Okay, so that's the that, that's a, a sense of of what baptism means within the 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 Christian tradition as it's been laid out in in sacramental theology. 
But there is, of course, also then the initiatic perspective, that when we baptize, there is an initiation that takes place. Because more often than not, as we've said, that with infant baptism, baptism is a way to, to bring this infant into uh, a body of believers. And to be sure, when we're talking about initiatory orders or initiatory practice connection to a chain of initiation, something like a purification is often considered to be a necessary precondition. Uh, Luc Benoit uh, considers bodily purity to be one of the necessary conditions of, of initiation. Benoit obviously is, is writing from a, a sort of traditionalist, uh, esoterist perspective. And so he's, he's drawing very much on this sort of baptismal tradition. But to undertake initiation is to be reborn or regenerated. And if we look at a traditional practice of, of esoteric orders, of uh, various kinds of initiatory bodies, we often see this birth, life, death, rebirth kind of cycle played out in, in the symbols. So to undertake initiation is this kind of rebirth or regeneration. That is to say, it points to the transformative power of, of purification. And to be sure, the birth-death symbolism relates very, very closely to the idea of infant baptism. And so often what we see in esoteric practice is that there is some kind of, in this case of course not sacramental, but some kind of ablution, some kind of baptism that is meant to recall the baptism as an infant, that's meant to recall that moment where you first became part of, of something larger than yourself. Water, of course, is also associated with the primeval state, that is to say, that water is the, the beginning of things. And so, you know, we can think of the, the spirit of God that moves over the face of the waters. We can think of the waters of the Absu. Uh, but we could also think about the, the sort of birth of life on this planet within the, the, the great oceans. And so there is this sense in which water does represent beginnings. It represents that uh, undifferentiated state, that, that chaos from which we will emerge. Within the context of the AJC specifically, uh, the ritual is fairly traditional in, in most regards. Uh, it involves the, the invocation of the Trinity, it involves running water, or water that moves, uh, but also uh, the anointing at the eyes, throat, hands, and forehead. And to a certain extent, this recalls the orthodox practice of chrismation, although to be sure, uh, our confirmation rite is separate. The Trinitarian formula is absolutely necessary for AJC baptism. There is no question about that. That is a settled matter. A historic practice uh, has been to say that rebaptism, that is to say, baptizing somebody who is already being validly baptized, is never necessary. That that any baptism with true natural water, with the word baptize or its equivalent, and the invocation of the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit is sufficient. And so we do not rebaptize. Uh, only in the most extreme situations would there even be a conditional baptism. Uh, that normally there is a, a presupposition of, of validity. Uh, though to be sure, you know, I think that the if you are not already baptized, uh, I baptize you in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit would be uh, the, the way that we would go about it. We do uh, continue the practice of godparents in most situations, that is to say sponsorship by two members of, of the AJC. Um, parents are generally among the godparents. Parents of, when we're practicing uh, infant baptism, 
are generally to be preferred as part of that, that godparent uh, community. Adult baptism, of course, is, as I said before, consistent with the uh, active expectations of Gnostic practice. And uh, that we are not necessarily involving uh, parents, but there is still this sort of sponsorship idea. Infant baptism is still permitted as a recognition of membership in the community, but not as necessary for salvation. There is not that sort of uh, conception in the AJC, uh, at least on a, a dogmatic level, of original sin being something that needs to be washed away. Then the baptism is invalid, and uh, everybody should feel bad. And everybody should feel bad. No, no, no. It does not at all invalidate the baptism that, at all. No, but does um, someone else, because I don't have anyone in my community that's got infants, does someone else step in? No, no. That, that's, that, that's somebody who, to a, I mean, the most important thing there is is that they are, are bringing you in. But, if I, if I escort you into the room and then walk out, you haven't left the room, right? I, but you may still need me to, to get you in the door, right? So uh, th there's certainly no problem there. It doesn't create any sort of difficulty or anything like that. So any other questions? Um, I think that the, the last thing that I wanted to sort of mention uh, about baptism, and I... I started to think this through, and it, it led me down a couple of, of interesting rabbit holes, <coughs> is the relationship of baptism to the other sacraments. And baptism is a necessary precondition for the sacraments of confirmation, so you can't be confirmed if you're not baptized, and holy orders, therefore. Right? So. So there are, are two sacraments that can only be administered to somebody who is already baptized. There are four sacraments that can be given to somebody who is baptized or somebody who is unbaptized. So the Eucharist, because we have the open Eucharist, uh, the sacrament of reconciliation, uh, unction, and marriage. So these can be, these can be affected within the AJC tradition uh, without baptism, which of course means that there is also one sacrament that can only be administered to somebody who's unbaptized, which of course is baptism itself. Mm -hmm. right? That baptism itself requires that somebody be unbaptized. And, and when I sort of, when, when that sort of connection sort of crystallized for me. I thought that that was a, a, a very interesting point. So there are two that, that, that require baptism, four that are indifferent to baptism, and one that requires that you be unbaptized in order to receive it. Baptism really is the start of a sacramental journey that uh, within the active life of the AJC, it's necessary to, to be brought in in this way not because we consider you to be polluted by the outside world or by original sin or anything else, but that we use this symbol as a, a recognition of our participation in you know, that great church of the spirit that practices in a particular way. And so to begin one's journey in uh, the AJC often involves discussion of and sometimes a celebration of baptism. So, are there any other questions at this point? Yeah. In what condition would someone that is not baptized baptize someone else? It would be what we say in extremis. Okay. You're in, you're in a car accident, yeah. right? And you have a uh, lot of the sunny. Right. <laughs> and, and, you've, and, you, and you've got this, which is you know true natural water. So uh, we would call this water, right? So you're in an automobile accident. Uh, you pull yourself from the wreckage, you, you, you pull the other person out, 
They are literally bleeding out on the ground. You have no possibility of saving them. You call 911 anyway. Let's just make sure that that's on tape. <laughs> you know, calling 911 is actually, I think, more important than baptism. Call me practical. Um, this person says, you know, I've always, I, I always meant to get baptized, but I, I, I never did. You know, I, I just, you know, and now I'm, I'm suddenly in that, these last moments of life, uh, convinced that that's something that I need. Well, you, you pull out your bottle of Dasani. These are the requirements to make it valid. <laughs> yeah. They should know that you can't baptize them with their own blood because that would just—that's not what blood is. Not water. Yeah. Blood. Yeah, it, it has to be something that if you were, if you had a glass of it, you would say, yeah, that's water. A normal person. So, so like we said, you know, snow melt. You know, what comes out of the shower is water. You want to baptize somebody in a shower? It's you know, given that it's, it's an running. extreme enough situation. That's, that's moving water, so that's, that's actually in some sense, you know, uh, it, it fits the bill perfectly. But those kinds of situations are extremely, extremely rare. That if there, there is any possibility that, you know, you're going to make it to, to a church, that they're going to, to live through it, and so on and so forth, um, it, it's generally considered to be uh, appropriate to wait. Would that be conditional at that point if they did survive? That 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 is, um, uh, if for example you you know to take our, our car car crash example, if you were to administer the, or or a layperson or or even a, somebody outside of the church were to administer that sacrament, it would not need to be redone. It okay. would not need to be conditionally uh, confirmed. That okay. that is that's that's valid so long as there is this realistic expectation that this is an extreme situation and this is what I what I have to do. So long as that condition exists, then, then it doesn't need to be uh, conditionally redone. The only time, the only time you would do a conditional baptism is if, uh, for example, somebody were to come and say, so I was, I was baptized as an infant and I was baptized as part of a small family church, and I'm not sure whether they use the Trinitarian formula or just the name of Jesus. And maybe beer. Right, or maybe they used beer. Right? Uh, I was in Trondheim, and you know, they hadn't gotten the memo from Gregory the Ninth, and you know, they were using mead. So at that point, if we don't know, uh, that would be the only case in which okay. there would be a, a conditional baptism. So this is this actually came up with somebody who uh, is going to be confirmed, right? Mm -hmm. That I've been helping. Um, so probably baptized as an infant as a Lutheran, I think. Uh -huh. so which would, I, which I just, would be absolutely right. valid. So and I thought, well, if it's Lutheran, it must be okay because yep. it would be the right mm -hmm. formula. So why not? But if they didn't know what the denomination was, that would pose a problem. That would pose a problem, yeah, and. His eminence can correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, if we have real uncertainty, uh, we we would do the conditional, yeah. the conditional. Uh, the re and, and I've got a, a former Jehovah's Witness and a former Baptist. Yeah, I mean, uh, with the Baptist, it depends on what kind of Baptist they are, and uh, you know, Baptists, you know, there are very very little groups in some cases that do things a little bit differently. So there could be a legitimate question. Witnesses, I know I read something yeah, about. Witnesses, they, they're not in the Trinity. They're, not they're, they're definitely, definitely not definitely in the Trinity, Trinity, but do they, do they baptize at all? Yeah. They do baptize. They do okay. baptize. They baptize, but, it's, but, but there's no Trinitarian formula. So that, um, yeah, we would have to, to do it conditionally. Baptism yeah, is their ordination as well. When the okay. men get baptized into the That's the baptism church, into the priesthood. They become, yeah, they become. Elders. Elders, yeah. Elders, right. right. Yeah, presbyters. presbyters. So, okay, you had a, a question? Yeah, well? I was wondering, um, and this has only been my own personal observation, I was just wondering if anybody else had it, but I've always seen a reflective quality to baptism. Like, there's an aspect of, of seeing yourself in the reflection, and I am thou, and thou art I, and I'm going to die to myself and resurrect as this other thing. Kind of like an Alice in Wonderland looking glass situation, or a narcissist kind of situation, but if you look at it in a, 
you know, be what you see and see what you are mm -hmm. kind of way has this reflective quality behind it of like, you know, I, I just don't think that people went down in a van by the river and met John and he just threw water in them. I think there was a real practice of self-reflection. There has and, to be the intent. Yeah and, yeah, and and so to me, baptism is a commitment to a life of that self-reflection. Yeah, I, I think that that's, that there, there's, I, I, and, and we could draw on that symbolism the way that the pool of water reflects, and you know, there's all sorts of wonderful symbolism there. I certainly think that that's, that's a good way to think about things. And to your point. I can speak to that a little bit. Yeah, please. Actual literal, literal reflection, and possibly some of the rituals we talked about in the Gospel of Philip, what we're talking about, where you need to have a reflective surface. There's an inner light and an outer light. Mm -hmm. And baptism is probably part of what happened in the, as a preliminary or something that happened in the, uh, uh, the bridal chamber ritual. And to so me, that's the twin. See yourself. Yes, you that's see yourself. my twin. When you go down into the baptismal pool, you would see yourself reflected in the water. Yeah. 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 And of course, the symbolism in the Apocrypha of John, the reflection of the divine. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? This one, there's an interesting thing is that Mormons baptize using the Trinitarian formula, but Rome considers it invalid. Why, why do they consider it invalid? Because of the nature of divinity being non. It's not substantial. It's gods who have come together to form oh. a divinity. So there's a there's a theological. Thank you for making the segue to the polytheism topic. Uh, yeah, uh, it's not actually Trinitarian, then. It's just the polythe polytheistic. It's triple. Yeah, it's triple. They do use the words. They use the words, but it's they not. They do Trinity. use the words. They just don't. They do, wow. they do use the words, but what they mean. But they're not talking about. They are not. They're, they're not talking about like we were talking about the Trinity yesterday. They're not talking about the Godhead. They're talking about several gods. Yeah, they're not, and therefore they're not intending to do as the Church does. Yeah. Yeah. So that so it fails not on form or matter. It fails on intent, which is pretty damn hard. That's yeah. Yeah, I mean, we very, very rarely have a situation where we say, well, what is the good father of the word and the thought, or the father of the word and the power, or the, you know, whatever. I was going to ask that. What happens if we don't use those exact words? Because I think that, you know, push comes to shove, we would have to call that valid. But the traditional formula, I mean, if you were to be administering it, it should be administered using the traditional uh, sacramental form, not because that's the only way to think about it, right? I mean, we have all of these wonderful ways to, to think about the Trinity, uh, but because that's what...